Welcome to another episode of the Weekly Podcast, True Crime Edition. I'm going to take a little bit of time to ask a favor, and I know that people get tired of hearing the begging and the pleading, but I'm going to beg and plead. We try each week to get better and to, to really dig in and, and find out as much information as we can to be respectful of the victims and even in some cases where there has been closure with an arrest to the offender's family as well. Uh, it is a small operation. It's uh, recorded on an iPhone 6 in a really nice walk-in closet in hopes that the clothing in here will uh, help give it a uh, a better sound. And what I mean by better sound is it doesn't sound like I'm sitting on a toilet. I hope. Well, I'm not sitting on a toilet. But I want to take this time to ask a few, few favors. Um, I would like for people that do listen to tell two people or to try to get two people to subscribe. If you listen on Apple or, or wherever you may listen, we're on 11 different platforms. Um, Apple, Google, Pocket Cast, Spreaker, uh, Spotify, iHeart, um, Stitcher, anyway, subscribe. Have get two people to subscribe, and if you also could get yourself and two people to give us a five star review and a short, oh, I'm sorry, five star rating and a short review, preferably a five star rating. Um, if you feel like you want to give something less than five. Um, Maybe just do that at a later date. But if you could, if you like it, if you think it's okay, give us a five-star. Give us a short review just saying, hey, I listen to this every week or I enjoy it, whatever. It doesn't have to be anything lavish. It could just be something simple. So I'm going to ask that you tell two people, and I'm going to ask that if you hear my voice, give me a five-star review, only if you feel like you can. If you feel like you can't, don't give me anything. A five-star rating. Shit, I keep saying review. Sorry. Five-star rating and a small review. So, that is kind of the business end of what I wanted to talk about. You can email us at theweeklypodcast at gmail.com. Um, you can leave us a voicemail. There is an anchor um I've lost my train of thought, a uh, link in the show notes that you can click and leave a voicemail. We will play any voicemail you leave on the next episode. Uh, I'm going to put the PayPal link in the show notes. If you feel like uh, donating to the show, any donation, $8 or more, I'll give you an opportunity to, if you want to promote something for 30 seconds, I will promote that for you. I will give you a shout out. You can just put the eight dot. We'll put the PayPal link in the show notes, or you can do it through Anchor. There's a link in the show notes. But any 
$8 donation will give you access to a 30 second spot for anything you want to talk about uh, that'll just help us maybe try to grow the show a little bit and uh, you know that's because that's my goal just a little bit at a time it's definitely a slow process but it's something that uh, I enjoy doing it and I hope you enjoy it too so send us an email if you want us to give us a shout out you want us to say whatever promote you your business I mean, we've got, uh, it's not quite got to the point to where it's crime junkie worthy, but we're, we're growing slowly but surely. Um, I'd like to take this time to talk about, we run an operate, we run a business, it's, uh, it's YAMS, it stands for Your, Your Advertising Marketing Solutions. Uh, we partner up with newspaper, uh, TV, uh, different companies to we sit down and we try to help uh, we, we run advertising and marketing campaigns for different businesses we've partnered up with uh, a company Epic Customs Inc. that's Epic Customs INC you can find them on Facebook um, you can find them on Instagram it is Epic Customs Inc. they will customize anything on anything if you want your name on a cup if you want your grandmother's old recipe uh, etched into a, uh, a cutting board or a pizza. I, I mean, they can just do, really, the way the best way to explain it is they can customize anything on anything. They can do vinyl, they can do laser cutting, they can do etching, they can do anything. So, hats, shirts, cups, cutting boards, the whole shebang. Uh, it's an amazing company. Look them up. Uh, Epic Customs, Inc. Uh, it's run by a woman... Uh, named Christy Wolfenbarger. Uh, send her a message. Tell her that you heard her ad on the podcast. Even if you don't want to purchase anything, just let her know, let them know that you just gave their their Facebook page or their Instagram page a look and that you heard it on the weekly podcast. Uh, I also want to let everyone know that we are working on the Jonathan Lee Ellis case. It's a dis missing persons case in Johnson City, Tennessee, Jonesboro, Tennessee area. Um, we're trying to get some information together on that. Uh, it'll be another few weeks probably before we're ready, but I want to put that on everybody's mind. Look it up on Facebook. They have a missing persons page there. It's Jonathan Lee Ellis. And I also want to make sure that you remember our last week's episode. Last week episode, we had a conversation with Sherry Snyder. Uh, her mother, Diane Teresa Francis, went missing back in 2005, early 2006. She has never been heard from again. Um, this case, there's not a great deal of information out there. Listen to last week's episode. I have a conversation with, uh, like I said, her daughter, Sherry Snyder, uh, amazing person. She's out there doing uh, a lot of hard work for to, you know to help find her mother, to help find information, people, anything. Uh, look that up on Facebook as well. That's Diane Teresa Francis. Uh, you can also maybe look up her daughter, Sherry Snyder. Uh, like I said, if you want to donate to the show, send us anything, $8 or more. We'll get you a 30-second spot. Send us an email of what you want and how you want to say it to Podcast at gmail.com. And so, without further ado, let's get into it. We'll be right back.
All right, guys, this week we're going to, uh, and like I said, if you hear, I am a paper, pencil, old school kind of person. It's the only way I can understand things. So if you hear something rattling, it is a paper, and it is in front of me, and I am reading from it at times. Sometimes I go down into this rabbit hole inside my brain, and it's very cloudy and foggy in there, and I get lost. And then I try to find my notes and come back out. But today we're going to discuss... Some new evidence in a case which absolutely consumes my mind. It consumes my soul. It consumes my being. I want to know who this fool is so bad I can't stand it. Who this guy is. Who has killed all these women and has, have, have left their bodies and pieces of body parts all up and down the East Coast. Well, not all up and down the East Coast, but I feel like at least as far down as Atlantic City and up to Long Island. We're going to discuss the Long Island serial killer, and it's going to be an update. I had done a little podcast on them early on. It is a case in which I feel like will be solved one day. I feel like it's going to take a little bit of luck and a whole lot of DNA and a whole lot of probably genetic detective. That woman is amazing. I love that show. What an amazing ability to to do what she does i mean i get it the dna is one thing but i'm telling you being able to put those family trees together is not an easy task by no means that woman is amazing and i'm hoping that that this case is solved one day because it, it's it to me it's it's insane it's just crazy but we're going to discuss new evidence. Um, they, they come out with a few things this year. We're going to discuss that. And, you know, we're going to talk about the idea of the Manorville torso victim, uh, number one, or Jane Doe, number six, as she's called. Uh, we want to talk about new suspects and theories. Uh, we look at the entire timeline of uh, the Long Island serial killer and the victims. And I want to, I don't want you to feel like I'm all over the place. But what we're going to really, how we're going to kind of lay this out is we know how this all started as far as in the public. So we know the story of Shannon Gilbert. Shannon Gilbert went to a John's house by the name of Joe Brewer out in the Oak Beach area. Now she had been at Joe's for hours. Well, let's say this. She, go, she gets to Joe. She's driven to Joe Brewer's. Shannon Gilbert is by Michael Pack, her driver. They had done several jobs together. This wasn't new for them to get together. Uh, they get to Joe Brewer's house. He comes out. She goes in. Shannon calls Michael Pack, wants him to go to the Walgreens to get some cards and some other garbage. Well, he doesn't go because Oak Beach is too far out, probably 45 minutes to the closest store, and it may, may not even be open. He says, no, she gets mad, sits, tells him just to go on, but he doesn't. He sits there. Um, a few minutes later, he sees Shannon and Joe Brewer get into his vehicle, and they leave for a bit. Well, anyway, they extend the date a couple times. She's in there probably three to four hours. Now, after being at Joe's for several hours, uh, and like I said, they even left the house together earlier in the date. So I think, you know, drugs came into play. Maybe, you know, Joe needed to make her look crazy to discredit her if you know she ever come out and said anything because joe finally makes the call 
and says, come get this girl out of here. She's went crazy. She won't leave my home. She's acting uh, just nuts. She's going crazy. But yes, drugs can induce certain behaviors. But I also feel like with Shannon Gilbert, we were dealing with someone that was not new to drugs. Now, I'm not meaning that in a disrespectful way, but if someone has done drugs on a more so than somebody the first time, they're going to kind of know how their body would react. Now, I know that there's, I'm not saying that's every time, but I'm just saying that she was no rookie to this scene. So, what happened inside that house for a street smart person to absolutely go crazy? And not only go crazy, now this is Joe Brewer's story and Michael Pack's story. But she went and hid from Michael Pack. She wouldn't even go to the vehicle. She runs down to Gus Coletti's house, knocks on his door. Then she hides behind a boat. Then she darts down the road that goes down past Dr. Peter Hackett's home, which Michael Pack didn't see her go down that way, so he eventually leaves. The police show up about 45 minutes later because several neighbors had called, please show up, and they leave. That is the end of that story, so everyone would, would hope that lived in Oak Beach. You know, there's a couple of theories, and I'm going to go through them all, because the theories are outside of the box. Now, obviously, thinking inside of the box has, has gotten people nowhere in this case, because they've not solved it. They don't know who done this, but Shannon goes missing. No one can find her. Her boyfriend, Michael Pack, go back out and they talk to Peter Hackett, which is kind of like the guru of the neighborhood. He's a doctor. Now, it's believed that the doctor, Peter Hackett, got the number for Mar uh, Shannon's mother, Mary, at this time. He reaches out to Mary and, and tells her that Shannon was at his home, that he runs a home for wayward girls, and that she he gave her a sedative and sent her on her way, and she was fine. He denies this. Come to find out, Mary was telling the truth, and the phone calls were on Mary's phone record. So what does that phone call mean? That phone call's odd to me. Not only was it like he, he didn't say, Hey, Mary, uh, I found your daughter. I'm a doctor, but we took care of her. You know, blah, blah, blah. He says, I run a home for wayward girls. So is this a way, subconsciously, of him telling Mary, hey, I've done this shit before. To me it is. But anyway, nothing comes of that. Nobody really says much of anything at all. Until... The canine dog is out doing a training exercise, but is training out there where Shannon went missing. They had run some searches for her, but it hadn't made national headlines. It wasn't all over the place. But we all know the story. The canine officer and his dog what they found that day 
and it absolutely opened up a, an, a crazy, crazy case. And I was going to say investigation, but I don't know how true that would be. So that is what sparks the big manhunt inside this area of Oak Beach, stretches to Gilgo Beach, and even at some point involves Jones Beach, and even the area of Maynerville. So, I wanted to give you that lead up to what started the case of the Long Island serial killer. There's different... Now, then, now keep in mind, I am merely thinking outside the box. And what I say could be totally wrong, could be totally crazy, but whatever. You know, let's say Shannon runs out. It didn't go the way maybe Joe Brewer had planned it. Maybe she's in there. Maybe she's snooping around. Maybe she finds a picture of one of the, the girls that had went missing because before Shannon had went missing, only two of the first four girls had even been abducted. The other two were not abducted until after Shannon went missing. Maybe she's seen a picture. Maybe she found a picture of a, a girl in, in uh, tied up bondage. Maybe she run into something in that house that absolutely, positively scared the teetotal shit out of her. Maybe this was Joe Brewer's first connection with Sarah, uh, Shannon Gilbert. And it probably was. Maybe he was grooming her. You know, maybe that uh, this was the step in the process of, of getting to know the, the women. You know, invite them over for the first time. Then maybe the next time it's with the rest of the group, the wild sex parties. And then maybe that third time, they're comfortable. Or maybe Dr. Hackett and Joe Brewer was part of a sex ring. And they weren't into killing girls, but one person that was involved in that sex ring was. But, you know, th th let's, let's say Joe get, had to get Peter Hackett involved. You know, he normally can, can get, Dr. Hackett can normally get the girls to calm down, you know, and talk some sense into them. But this time, Shannon had to be killed for self-preservation. Maybe it's a, a one-off murder trying to hide the, the sex ring. And just so happened... It's a killer, you know, a dumping ground for a serial killer. And Hackett Brewer had no idea that, that this case would blow up like it did. They had no idea. So, you know, like I said, maybe uh, Shannon Gilbert seen pictures of Joe Brewer and another client she knows with one or two of the, the missing girls and just assumed that they'd killed him, you know? So, I really feel like that maybe they was... Oh, shoot, sorry. Like I said, I get in the rabbit hole. So I just question as to wonder why, what caused Shannon Gilbert to f to freak out like she did, according to Joe Brewer, because the 911 tape has been, re been released to the Gilbert estate's attorney, and he has heard it. He is not able to speak of its content, but what he can do is either say yay or nay on what the police have already put out about Shannon Gilbert in the phone call. 
They say she was acting erratically. They say she could they, she couldn't be understood. All these different things. And according to that lawyer, that is not the case. So that's a little curious as well. But what what caused her to to run out? What caused her to to want to to leave that house? That, that that's a question. And of course, they believe that that Shannon Gilbert's murder is separate from the other original first four that they had found. So I'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure. So let's look at the timeline and include all of the possible Long Island serial killer and his victims. Now, at the end of this, I want to name several. There's four or five more that's not included in the book by Robert Coker, Lost Girls. But let's go to April 20th, 1996. Now, this is when two female legs wrapped in plastic bags I'm sorry, two female legs wrapped in a plastic bag. They are discovered on Fire Island, west of Davis Park Beach. Now, we jump to December 19th, 2000. The first of two human torsos is discovered by hikers in the Long Island Pine Barrens in Maynardville. This is off Hazley Manor Road. Now, this is December 19, 2000. This is the first of two human torsos. The second human torso is found July 26, 2003. Uh, it is discovered in the Pine Barrens, not far from the first. The remains are identified as Jessica Taylor, 20-year-old escort from Washington, D.C., last seen days earlier at the Port Authority bus terminal in Manhattan. Port Authority by the water. Now, we have a gap here. Two, 2003, we go to July the 9th, 2007, is when Marine Brainerd Barnes is last seen in her room at the Super 8 Hotel in Midtown Manhattan. Her last known call that night is to her sister, Missy, during which she says she is at Penn Station. July the 12th, 2009, that is approximately almost two years to the day later, Melissa Bartholomew is last seen outside her apartment in the Bronx. In the next month, her sister Amanda will receive seven phone calls from a man claiming to be her killer. Now, I want to go through the timeline, and then we will back up and talk about theories. May the 1st, 2010 is when the ordeal with Shannon Gilbert occurs. She disappears at sunrise after being seen running out of Joe Brewer's house in Oak Beach, Long Island. Neighbors Gus Coletti and Barbara Brennan are among the last to see her in the vicinity of Anchor Way. Now, like I said, the other two go missing after Shannon is disappeared. Goes this shit. The, the other two of the first four go missing after Shannon has disappeared. June fifth, two thousand ten, Megan Waterman disappears from the Hopakaj Happy. Oh my God. Hopper College Holiday, yeah, whatever. H, nah, it don't matter. Hope a page. Holiday Inn Express, last seen heading toward a nearby convenience store on foot. 
September the 2nd, 2010, Amberlynn Costello leaves her home in North Babylon to meet a client never to be seen again. Now, December the 11th, 2010 is when it all breaks open. The police and the canine discover a full skeleton wrapped in burlap in the bramble besides Ocean Parkway near Giggle Beach, three miles from Oak Beach. The remains are later identified as Melissa Bartholomew. They thought it was Shannon. They thought they found her, but they didn't realize they uncovered a mass grave. Two days later, December 13, 2010, near where Melissa was found, police found three more sets of remains, also skeletons wrapped in burlap, later identified as Megan Waterman, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, and Amberlynn Costello. On the 25th of January 2011, Suffolk County Police Commissioner Richard Dormer and Suffolk County District Attorney Thomas Spoda publicly acknowledged that the police are looking for a serial killer. Now, March the 29th, 2011, police find a skull, hands, and forearm. These are later verified to be additional remains of Jessica Taylor, the woman whose torso was found in Maynardville in 2003. These remains are also found along Ocean Parkway, three-quarters of a mile east of where the first four bodies were discovered. But a long ways away and a long time from when they found her torso in 2003. Now, April 4th, 2011, three more sets of remains are found along Ocean Parkway. An unidentified Asian male dressed in women's clothing and the skull, the hands, and foot of the first Maynardville Jane Doe an unidentified girl, and an unidentified girl between 16 and 32 months old. So they find the skull, hands, and foot of the first Maynardville torso. And in the same area, they find skull, hands, and forearm of Jessica Taylor. So the later remains of Jessica Taylor... Well, let me go ahead and say, they just identified that first torso as Valerie Mack, or a.k.a. Melissa Taylor, which I don't know if there's any coincidence between it being Jessica Taylor, Melissa Taylor, which is just a common name she used, but the point is the two torsos were found three years apart in 2000-2003 of Valerie Mack, Jessica Taylor. Then... So many years later, the, the skull, hands, forearm of Jessica Taylor and the skull, hands, and a foot of Valerie Mack are found in the same area. That's not a coincidence. The same person killed both of those. And I feel like that the fact that their remains found in 2011 were in the same area as the first four victims in Burlap Though, that is enough for me to connect those two. We'll go through on why you think that he possibly stopped his M.O., changed his M.O. from uh, mutilating and cutting up the, the bodies to, to wrapping them in full burlap and just putting them out intact. In but let's get through the timeline. Now, same April 11th, uh, 2011, police uncovered two more sets of remains in two separate locations. The first discovery is female bones and jewelry found near the Jones Beach Water Tower. Now, this is later suggested by DNA that she is the mother of the little girl found eight days earlier along Ocean Parkway with 
the Asian male and the skull, hands, and foot of Valerie Mack. The second is this a skull discovered west of Tobey Beach in Nassau County. Now this is later determined to be that of that Jane Doe, um, the legs found in 1996 on Fire Island. Does that connect the legs from 96 and give us a one killer theory? I think so. Now, April 12th, uh, first news report, they had come out about Mary, Mary Gilbert's claim that she spoke with Dr. Peter Hackett. We know that that turned out to be true. Uh, May 9th, 2011, um, Spoda comes out. Now, Spoda, to me, is a, he ends up getting arrested, after, and, and James Burke as well, the, the police chief that comes in after Dormer. Um, I think they had a role in not necessarily the killings, but I think that they played a role in some sort of sex ring that operated out in that area with people with money and power. And I believe that the Long Island serial killer is part of that group. I'm not saying he has let anyone know that he's a serial killer, but I do believe that is the connection, is he is part of a sex ring. He may not be Spoda, he may not be James Burke, he may not be the investigator who worked for the DA, may not be Joe Brewer, may not be Dr. Peter Hackett, but it's somebody with money, power, privilege, connection. We'll get to that. Uh, they hold some vigils through June, July 12th. Uh, Peter Hackett talks to the news. Um, November 29th, Dormer, which is the chief police chief then, revises the case theory yet, announcing he believes a single killer is to blame for 10 victims. But they do believe that Shannon's disappearance is a separate case, and they don't think it's even a murder. I don't believe that. I believe it is a murder. However, I do not believe it is necessarily connected at the hands of Lisk, Long Island serial killer. But I do believe that Peter Hackett and Joe Brewer had murdered Shannon and self-preservation. So Peter Hackett, has, what he told, my belief is this, what Peter Hackett told Mary is the truth. She was there. I'm not sure if he'd done that in self-preservation for holy shit, what if they come here and find her DNA? Or what? But it's odd that he would offer the evidence or insert himself for no reason whatsoever. We'll get back to theories. Let's go through the timeline. Uh, November 30th, 11, the Suffolk County Police announced they will reopen the search for Shannon along Ocean Parkway. Uh, they acted like they had to wait for the rest of the spring and summer, which she went missing a long time ago. But anyway, um, uh, so on December the 6th, 2011, on day two of the new search, the police move from Ocean Parkway to Oak Beach. The same, that same day, they find Shannon's pocketbook, ID, cell phone, jeans, and shoes in a marsh, steps from where she was last seen on Anchor Way. So Shannon's going to be in a drug-induced state 
and she's going to shed her clothes. She's going to throw her fucking cell phone down, her purse, all of it. I would imagine if she's in some kind of crazy state, that she would be running and maybe taking it off and getting rid of it a piece at a time, not all in one spot. Just my opinion. So now, December 13, 2011, Shannon's remains are found on the far side of Oak Beach Marsh, a quarter mile from her belongings. Before an autopsy is performed, Dormer refers to her death as an accident. Spoda doesn't agree with Dormer's single killer theory. Um, that same day, they replace the county executive, uh, Steve Ballone, names Dormer's replacement uh, as commissioner, effective January 1st, which would be James Burke. Uh, Mary Gilbert publicly calls for the FBI to take over in December 2011. Uh, January of 2012, Suffolk County Intern Commissioner Edward Weber announces there's uh, no fixed theories at the moment about the Gilbert case or any of the Ocean Parkway cases. Uh, Shannon's autopsy result is shared with family. The cause of death is undetermined. Shannon's family files a wrongful death lawsuit against Peter Hackett. Now, like I said, the most recent evidence to come out is they have found, they they released a picture of a belt and a belt buckle, and they have identified Maynardville torso victim number one and uh, or Jane Doe number six as Valerie Mack. Now let's look at what we know concerning. The Long Island serial killer. The four women found wrapped in burlap, we can say with certainty that these are the victims of the Long Island serial killer. So let's 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 look at that for a second. Okay, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, she was taken on July 9, 2007. Melissa Bartholomew was taken July 10, 2009, almost to the day exactly two years later. Why July? Why the two-year gap between the first two? Did he, you know, did he go kill somewhere else in the two years between these two women? Or if he's waiting two years between his kills, why? Is it just the fact that the urge, he's able to control that urge at this point for two years? I mean, because if you just take the, the timeline of Robert Coker, you've got 96 two legs found. Four years. December 20th, you got the first torso. Then you got three years, the second torso. Then you've got a gap between 2003 and 2007. Now, I don't know if he had went somewhere else and killed in between that. that you know, that is a, a four-year gap. But it seems at that point, four years is about what we're finding, 96 to 2000, 2000, 2003. So maybe that's just still his ability to control that urge is still, he's, he's able to go two and three and four years without killing. So, like I said, if he's waiting two years, between his kills, why is he waiting two years? Why? Why 
July. First two were in July within days of one another. Now we look at the second victim, Melissa Bartholomew. Why did he call her sister? Why did he call the sister six, seven times? Now, to me, this should stand out because it's a one-off. It's one-off behavior. No other victim, no other victim's family or or any acquaintance of any other victim is, con is contacted. Why Amanda? Why? So why Amanda? Why Melissa Bartholomew? What makes her different? What makes him want to call Amanda, to taunt Amanda? He knows it's Melissa's little sister. He's got some basic information concerning Amanda. He calls Melissa a whore, but more than anything, he, ex he enjoys exposing the lie to her mom and family. The family thinks she's a dancer. He enjoys exposing this. Oh, she wasn't a dancer. She was a whore. She was a prostitute. He gets the most enjoyment out of this. He had always called in the evening. He always spoke in a low voice. What was the reason? Why in the evening? Was it because she had school? He wanted to make sure he could get her, whatever, work, vice versa? Did he have work? Was he busy during the day? He always spoke in a low voice. Why was that? Was it because if they ever identified him, he, did they want, he didn't want her to be able to identify his voice? Or did she know him? Did she know his voice? And he was afraid that he would get caught. Was that, is that what made calling Melissa Bartholomew's sister Amanda important? Because out of all the victims, he knew her. He knew Amanda. He knew the family. Now, he wouldn't talk to anybody but Amanda. The mom, her mother answered one time and he hung up on her. Now, he would only stay on the phone three minutes or less. He had knowledge, to, and his knowledge was that if he stayed on the phone any longer, they would be able to, be able to pinpoint his location. He also used uh, Melissa Bartholomew's phone. He called from Times Square, Madison Square Garden, Massapequa, which is just a short drive from Gilgo Beach. Now, when the news caught wind and reported on it on August the 9th, 2009, he stopped. Was that the reason he stopped? Because according to the, the book, he started on July the 9th, or she went missing, let's see. She went missing on July the 9th. Is he so poised and so detail-oriented that he put a 30-day cap on it? Like, I'm going to 30 days, I'm stopping. Who knows? Like I said, Melissa disappeared July 9th. His last phone call was August 9th. Is he so structured that he gives himself exactly 30 days to torture or do whatever his intentions were to Melissa's family, especially to the sister, Amanda. We know that the night Melissa disappeared, she had a night, she had $900 deposited into her bank account by the client, by a client, her client. So who was this client? Who was this last person? Is he the last person to see her? And why did she leave her phone? That phone was a lifeline. And she wasn't the only one 
to leave her phone. She felt safe. And it's also stated that Amber Costello felt safe. She left her phone as well. So what's the reason that someone would feel comfortable enough to leave the phone and not uh, and, and go away with a, a John? Well, one thing will tell you that they, they knew them. They had done business with them before. They had been around them before. Or the money was so good and the person had a position of power or authority to make you say, well, there's no way a police chief would kill me or a police officer would kill me or a district attorney would kill me or a lawyer would kill me. Or he says, hey, remember me? I was at the party that James Burke was at. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's all it takes. So, the killer, let's ask ourselves this question. So, the killer has been killing for 20 years or, or whatever, 15, 20 years, all right? Slowly escalating his, his cool down period. And the only time that he shows himself is to Melissa's sister, Amanda. I find that odd. There is something to that. Just my opinion. I feel like that the Long Island serial killer has uh, a strong and maybe strange, or you know, strange to you, maybe not strange to others, but sex drive. I believe he's wealthy, he's connected, and he's respected. Maybe a little feared. He knows his way around a boat and water. He's very meticulous. I believe he has a possible temper with any kind of disrespect, and he is bisexual. I feel like the boat, because you noticed some of these, are they disappear from port authority, port areas, things like that. I think a boat is used for maybe travel, transport, and it's easy to cut up a body on a nice, good-sized bluefin tuna boat. I think it'd be an easy way for him to abduct the victims, have privacy with the victims, entice the victims, and dispose of the victims. Early on, he was cutting them up, dismembering them, and then he developed into where he's at now, possibly. So what are the reasons behind that? A couple of theories are, you know, when you're back then, you had to pick up prostitutes on the street. You had to physically go there, so maybe somebody's seen him. So by identifying the prostitute, maybe they could find a friend that could connect. Oh, well, yes, I've seen uh, Jessica Taylor get into a blue Chevy Impala. Things like that. We don't know. These are theories, but I like to take, like we're going through today, taking certain parts of this timeline or certain parts of this case and laying it out and just asking why. Let's just think outside the box. Yes, maybe what I'm saying is not what it is. And that's fine. But all I'm saying is let's get our let's think. 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 It's there. Somebody knows this dude. Somebody knows. It is there. It you got to take behavior, especially strange well, all of this is strange behavior to me, but what I'm saying is out of this crazy mess, what stands out? That's all I'm asking right now. We'll be right back.
right, guys, we're back. Um, like we said, that, that the phone call is not part of his M.O. Because it's only done that one time. It's done for a 30-day period. He knows how long to stay on the phone. He knows to be in a crowded area. That's not to anybody be able to go because they went and pulled videos. And everywhere he called from was a crowded area. They had nothing. And he knew that. So that's what gives the law enforcement connection. So... I mean, a couple of questions to you maybe you can ask yourself. Uh, now, was each body dumped in Gilgo Beach? Or was it after he had killed all four and did he haul them all out there? Or was he dumping them as he killed them? Because, you know, he had been here before. The extra remains to the older murders connect them all together for me. And one killer, that one killer was a very wealthy, prominent, connected, and protected individual. I believe he was hooked in with Brewer, Burke, Hackett, and, you know what, I try to make a special note for... I must have misplaced it. Spoda. Because Burke was Spoda's project. Spoda protected Burke. Burke should have never been police chief. No one let the, F the inside that investigation. The FBI was not invited in. Everybody was kept out. And Burke and Spoda had secrets. Big secrets. Now, do I think Burke, Spoda, Brewer, Hackett are Long Island serial killer? No. But I do feel like that he was part of their sex ring. And I say sex ring, I mean these men had money, these men had power, and these men liked to have sex with prostitutes, women, two or three at a time, maybe each other, whatever. And that's cool. Whatever you want to do that's legal. But I believe that they all had some sort of Sexual, I don't want to say deviance because, you know, just because you have a threesome or sleep with prostitutes don't mean you're a bad person. But all I'm saying is they had something. Something was going on. Because we know James Burke had connections to prostitutes. He had, uh, and that gentleman broke into his vehicle, what got him in trouble anyway, and found all that stuff in the bag, the sex toys, <coughs> excuse me, the pornographic videos and all that stuff. So we know James Burke had connections to prostitution and he loved, I guess, to have sex with them. But I do believe that uh, the Long Island serial killer is hooked up with Burke, Brewer, Hackett, and Spoda. Um, in a sex ring, but um, things went a little bit, bit further. Now, did the killer, did Long Island serial killer know about Shannon's disappearance into the marsh area? Because we know it took a while for it to gain any kind of of knowledge because like I said two of the girls went missing after Shannon went missing so I mean was he part of a high profile sex party group that made weird things with prostitutes but kept his killing a secret if Burke was part of the sex ring it would not you know be a stretch for the killer to know 
he would be protected even if, if Burke didn't know and if it ever came out. You know, if it ever came to light that he was killing the girls after he had introduced them to, to Burke, what better way to keep your killings a secret, you know, than to kill a, a prostitute that had partied and, and slept with Burke or even had connections to Burke? Because if it ever got out about his sex parties or anything near Oak Beach or in the area, he would be he'd be ruined. The key to keeping everyone in line, in my opinion, is making sure everyone involved has something to lose. Joe Brewer, Peter Hackett had partied and done very bad things with prostitutes, but I don't believe they're the, the Long Island serial killers. So I feel like after the Shannon Gilbert, now I say this, I'm not saying her killing, I'm saying the, I'm thinking, let, let's, we're, right now we're talking about Joe Brewer and Peter Hackett. So in their mind, after the Shannon Gilbert debacle, went, everything went haywire, went off the rails, maybe because, A, she had a driver, maybe wasn't expecting that, maybe he was, maybe this first trip out there was just maybe to set the stage for, okay, let's get to know this girl, then we'll get her back for next visit without the driver, blah, 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 whatever. So after it somehow derails and she finds what she finds or uncovers what she uncovers to put her in that state, he starts maybe, and this is Long Island serial killer, starts planning or dumping in that area. Maybe he's had those four bodies and those remains from the torsos somewhere else. And maybe he thinks, now's my opportunity to put those out there and put it on Hackett and Joe Brewer. Well, that would make sense to me, but maybe it doesn't make sense to you. And, and they could have been dumped out there individually. But what I'm saying is once Shannon runs out and she disappears, maybe he starts dumping out there then to make it look like Joe Brewer and Peter Hackett are involved. Or maybe they're out there the whole time. I'm not sure. We just don't know. Um, but I do believe that Peter Hackett and Joe Brewer are involved in Shannon's death. I don't know how exactly, but I think it went a little off kilter for what they were wanting that night. And somehow, some way, out of self-preservation, she... Uh, Dr. Hackett makes a phone call to Mary to at least place Shannon in his home. But then it blows up. And it's nationwide. It's nuts. Because neither Peter Hackett nor Joe Brewer knew that there was a dumping ground right in their backyard. But with that being said, once it blew up, Peter Hackett had to backtrack. Because now it looks like he's a serial killer. And when he backtracks, he gets himself in a lie. And now he's a fucking liar. Can't be trusted. Piece of shit. So I, just, I think the escalation of the coverage kind of got him. But I do believe that maybe he gave her too much medicine. Maybe, he, I don't know. But Peter Hackett is involved somehow, someway in Shannon's murder. And I do not believe she is part of the Long Island serial killer murder, but I do believe that 
Hackett and, and Burke and Brewer are intertwined with Long Island serial killer, they just don't know it. And that is a theory. I'm just thinking outside the box. Call me stupid. I don't care. But I believe this man's got a boat. I believe he's on a boat. I believe that he's got a real high-end fishing boat. I'm not saying he's a fisherman. But I believe that could explain maybe him not being in the area certain times of the year. And I believe it could explain the ability to keep quiet. No one's seeing him do anything. Just my opinion. And I believe it would be an easy way to, to cut up a body without it looking uh, crazy, without having a little blood here and there, big knives, flay. I mean, have you seen a bluefin tuna? So anyway, let's look at a few more things that are, that are connected to Lisk. Um, like I said, we talked about the 96. We talked about the torsos. Uh, and then the two torsos were connected to the remains later found together. Uh, Jessica Taylor had not been missing but a day or so after her, when her before her torso was found. Um, the toddler that was found with the remains 2011 were connected to were connected to a, a body that was found a little bit further down next to the water tower. Um, like I said, the only pattern, you can see pattern, uh, okay, the torso, two torso killings, that's a pattern, a pattern, Jesus, a pattern, they're connected, because not only are the torsos found together, then the remains, like the hand skull of both of those victims are found together. Now, the four girls wrapped in burlap and found together are pattern. But I think what is odd to me is that you you know you have two girls go missing. Then you have Shannon Gilbert, she goes missing. You have her missing person story. And then after that, the murder takes two more the murderer takes two more victims and dumps them out in that same area as to where Shannon Gilbert had went missing so either there was no talk of Shannon Gilbert going missing in that time and we know it was local at that time or the killer wasn't always in the Long Island area I think pattern has a lot to do with it. I do. Uh, it looks like in the beginning, or not necessarily in the beginning, but the on the four burlap victims, July every two years were significant to me in the first two victims. And then you go, Shannon Gilbert goes missing, but you got one year after Shannon, the escalation goes from June of 2010 to September 2010. Now, like I said, if this is one person, then maybe the dismemberment, you know, of the earlier victims or, or countermeasures, like I said, to keep from identifying the victims because of the possible connection, you know, to the killer by him physically having to go pick them up. Because that is before the, an I ain't going to say anonymity. That's before you could hide behind the, the computer and, and get on Craigslist. You had to physically go.
Um, now, this year, Valerie Mack, a.k.a. Melissa Taylor, was the 24-year-old victim that was the first torso found in 2000. They were able to identify her this year. She was working in and around Philadelphia, and at the time of her disappearance, she was last seen in the spring or summer of 2000 around the Port Republic, New Jersey area. So she was last seen in August and found in, sep in September. So she wasn't out there long. Port Republic, New Jersey is a port on the water. And it is real close to Atlantic City. So we know that there are four murders in Atlantic City that mentions the eastbound Strangler. I'm not saying that it is Long Island serial killer and eastbound Strangler are the one and the same, but four women were dumped. In West Atlantic City, November the 20th, 2006, the bodies were discovered. Now, we don't know how long exactly they'd been dumped there, but we'll have a general idea. Kim, Raffo, Molly, Diltz, Barbara, Briador, and Tracy Roberts. They're in a drainage ditch behind the Golden Key Motel, which is in Egg Harbor Township. Now, this drainage ditch runs parallel all the way with Route 322. So I don't know if the Golden Key was the common denominator or this guy once again had collected four bodies and as he got to number four on his boat, he decided he needed to dump them. Now Barbara was 42. She disappeared October of 2006. Molly was 20. She's, it was unknown, but probably was the first victim because she was in the uh, decomposition the most out of any other body. Now, Kim was 35. She was last to seen live November 19th. That was the day before. Tracy, 23, last seen in early November 2006. So it wasn't a stretch here because they were all taken by October. October, so this guy kills four victims in October for early October, I'm sorry, he takes Molly early October. He takes Barbara middle October to end. He takes Kim uh, first of October, or I'm sorry, Tracy first of October, and then takes Kim the last the day before they're found. Now, to me, the fact that you, and it's just my opinion, we're just thinking, we're just throwing some shit out there, so don't, don't hear this and be like, holy shit, I want to strangle the hell out of Jeremy. The fact, I think, that you have a victim that's identified in Long Island. We've got her torso identified in Long Island. We've got her hand, skull, foot identified down near the, the Gilgo 4 that was last seen in New Jersey near Atlantic City on a port city, in a port city. To me, that gives a little bit of information to, to connect the, both of the Atlantic City eastbound strangler and Long Island serial, serial killer together. The killer knows the area. He's in the New York, New Jersey area most of the summer. The ability and winter. But you got to look at time early on. Maybe he never left 
maybe they're looking at these July victims and not realizing that somewhere else he's doing doing something to someone. Because as you notice, toward the end of that, that timeline, it gets a little bit closer with months instead of years. And maybe all this time, because if you look, in, these were found in 2006, and you've got a gap of the torso in 2003, and then you've got the first burlap killing in 2007. So in 2006, he kills these four, and then by, the, by July of 2007, he's ready to go again. There's no exact timeline to it as far as pattern, but it seems that it, you could see a certain escalation in it. Now, I don't know why that is. I don't think that, I think that it goes in, I don't necessarily know the mind of a serial killer, but you take someone that's been killing for 20 years, it's, it's, it's a, like a hobby to him at this point. He knows the ins and outs. He knows what to do, what not to do. And someone that has that urge to kill like that's not going to stop. I mean, maybe they can. BTK stopped for a certain amount of time. But I think the killer knows the area. He is in um, New Jersey, New York area most of the summer. The ability to stay out of the investigation says that he may have um, maybe... He may have... He may be different, and maybe some people think he has an, an odd, has odd behavior, but he's upper class with connections or high time type friends. He is connected to law enforcement or has connections that connect him. He's got people in high places. He's got friends in high places. He himself has power because he has money and influence. Now, people that know this killer, like I just said, his ability to stay out of the investigation tells me that he has the clout, the money, the power, that he could never do something like this. But what I just said was he may be different. And some people may say, well, that guy's a little different. And some people may think he's odd or has odd behavior, but they just look past it. Now, if you look at the known timeline of the Long Island victims, and you mix in the Atlantic City victims, to me, it fits. You got 96, the legs. 2000, the first torso. 2003, second torso. 2006, the Atlantic City murders. 2007, Barnes. 2009, Bartholomew. 2010, you've got Gilbert in there, which spearheads... The rest of the invest or, or spearheads the investigation kind of kicks it off. You've got in 2010 Waterman, 2010 Costello. There's a couple months there, and they find the first Long, Long Island remains in this this point here. Now the 2006 victims have been found, but they've never had no connection to the torso or anything that come along pre uh, 2006. Obviously, we know the 2007 and later stuff was after the Atlantic City murders in 2006. I think some wealthy people have strange desires. 
I think they feel like that they can have, I'm not saying all of them, just some of them, they think they can have anything. You ever watch the movie 8mm? When Nicolas Cage gets himself killed by damn uh, Tony Soprano for wanting to find out if a snuff film is real. This little girl or younger girl was uh, mutilated and killed and raped and murdered on film. And this very, 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 very rich, wealthy man had it and come to find out it was real and he paid somebody a million dollars to make it. And the reason why, he said, because, well, he died, but the reason why was because he could. And maybe that's exactly what's going on here, because he can and he loves it and enjoys it and has to do it. He will not stop. But I think some... Wealthy people have strange desires. The ones that, that do are dangerous. And the wealth I speak of is not only money, but it's power. It's power through money or position and control. Because no isn't understood. They feel entitled. It starts maybe with an affair with a prostitute and their desires become more and more and they push the boundaries and push the boundaries until murder and then they act on it. Because they do what they want they get what they want. Now, was the bodies and in, in the remains of the in 2010, 2011 always out in their spots? Was he killing one at a time and dumping them out there for years and years? I mean, obviously, starts in 96 with the torsos, but I'm talking the, the burlap victims. You know, you got the remains of the, the torso, the Manorville victims, that they, they sit up there. 2000, 2003, those are one, not one officer connected, but it's not four in an area wrapped the same, in the same state of decomposition. I believe they were all skeletonized. So, were they out there the whole time? So, was one abducted in 07 and put out there, then 09? And were the hands and the skull and the foot of those torso victims already out there? Or once Shannon Gilbert ran off into the dark marsh, did he decide to give them something extra to find? I'm not saying that they weren't out there individually as he killed, but I will say the Atlantic City murders were four victims. Were they dumped at one time? It, it seems that they were all dumped pretty close to one another, if not altogether. It's just a thought. I mean, it's just, it's just a thought. We've talked about the torsos, the fact that they were, that years later, down near Gilgo Beach, both torsos were found close together within three years, or in three years. And then those same torsos had remains found together miles away in 2011. So by finding the remains of the torso victims in with the burlap four or in that area, does that connect them? Does the fact that four victims were found the same match similar to four victims found in Atlantic City? I don't know. I think somebody that feels like they can get away with something like this or has or is able to continue to operate has something. Money, power, something. 
because this guy was able to get several street smart Craigslist prostitutes to leave their only line of communication behind. Why? What, what would have been this reason for asking them to leave it? So I know for a fact they sure as hell didn't volunteer to leave their cell phone behind. So why was that important to him? We know why it was important to him. And was Marine what was was the only reason that he made the phone call to Melissa's sister is because Melissa broke the rules and brought her phone. Did he give her the same ultimatum? Hey, listen, I'm a man in, in power. Remember I met you over at James Burke James James Burke's party. Whatever it may be. He he wasn't police chief then, but he was obviously he'd been in law enforcement forever. I met you over at the party with Sp Thomas Spoda, the district attorney, or I met you over. So he gives himself that ability. I've got money. I've got power. I'm in with these powerful people. I'm a police officer myself. I'm this. I'm that. Whatever it may be. Gives them that comfort to say, A, I've met him before. And B, someone in that kind of position with that kind of money wouldn't hurt me. So when she goes and she is found with her phone, that is a sign of disrespect to him. And not only does he let her know he's getting ready to kill her, but he also lets her know that he's going to kill her sister or he's going to torture her sister. He's going to give a little something extra to her because she disrespected him and nobody disrespects him. So the lure of big money but I feel like he's groomed him a little bit. I feel like there's some connection, maybe over the phone at the very least. Or, like I said, he's met them in the past and everything went fine. Is he part of a sex ring with Burke, Brewer, Dr. Hackett, and Spoda? Has he met some of these girls before? Is that the M.O.? Is the M.O. that some of these women have partied with these high, high, well, fluting men and have met their demise through one of them being a serial killer? So, like I said, why did he only call the one victim's family? I feel like I've answered that. I feel like that might be the reason. What made him do it? It's not part of, of ever anybody else's killing. I think it's disrespect. I think Melissa brought her phone because the other ones left their phones behind. We know that the change of disposal was because of possibly his abilities to not, not be connected to any of them. Or maybe he just decided that he didn't have to anymore. But I do feel like that something inside Joe Brewer's home scared Shannon to death. You know, I believe she was snooping around. I believe he was off doing something. I believe she was looking through his things, maybe f trying to find something to pick up or steal or take. And I believe she ran across something that scared her to death. And I believe it was something that connected him to other people 
in really high places doing really bad things. And I do believe that Peter Hackett and Joe Brewer were somehow involved in the death of, Sh of Shannon Gilbert. But there's a lot of theories. There's a lot of, and like I said today, we're just thinking outside of the box. We're just saying, why, why, what if, why? Well, I mean, it's not going to hurt anything. It's Maybe it's not the truth, but let's just put our brains to work. Let's just think about it a little bit. You know, maybe there's an answer in all this. Maybe there's not. Maybe you might get a good laugh out of me talking. And that's great if you want. I hope I make you laugh today. But talking about this shit, ain't nobody ever laughs. It's like watching the news. Ain't nobody want to watch that shit. It's always something. But this case means something to a lot of people in this country. I believe that this case is it's because these girls, whether or not they're prostitutes, they use drugs or whatever, they did not deserve this ending. They did not. None of them. Not a one. I think Shannon Gilbert was more of a was a better person than Joe Brewer and Dr. Hackett ever thought about being. I think you take somebody like that, especially Joe Brewer, he probably never had to really work for shit. Old piece of shit. He could anyway. No, I'm not gonna run down a rabbit hole on how shitty Joe Brewer is. But we've run through some theories, we've run through some timelines, we've run through some shit that goes on inside my brain, and uh, I'm going to take a break, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to discuss a few of the victims that may or may not be linked to Long Island Serial Killer or Eastbound Strangler, and uh, we'll wrap it up. We'll be right back. Thanks. I want to tell everyone thanks for listening. I know that uh, I may just have rambled and went on and carried on, but I feel like this this case is just intriguing to me. It's interesting. It, I, it's, I'm devastated that people have lost their lives this way. It's scary. It's lonely. It's terrifying. And it haunts me. And I want to know who this mfr is i want to know who this gentleman is i want to know who he's connected to i want to know now there's a few that are mentioned and i'm going to go through them they, they say there's a possible victim march the 3rd of 2007 okay and they she goes or had went by the name Cherries. Uh, she had the body art. Her torso was found in a suitcase in Harbor Island Park, and her legs found separately uh, after that. Now, she had been stabbed to death, so... The next is Tanya Rush, 39. Police believe... Her death may be connected to the others. She was found stuffed in a small suitcase in Belmore, New York in 2008. So what in the hell are they talking about May 17, 2011? Sorry, May 17, 2008. 
so 07, 08, I don't know. Uh, then they've got Natasha Jugo, or Yugo. Police suspect she is another victim, maybe. Her clothes were discovered in the sand on Gilgo Beach, and her body washed up there a few few months later in 2013. Now, of course, we talked about the oh, there was one more. Well, they put Shannon Gilbert's possibly connected to Long Island serial killer. I believe she's connected, but I believe it's connected through acquaintance into some other illegal activity. Um, there was also a possible victim of the Long Island serial killer. Uh, the woman was nicknamed Peaches due to a tattoo. Her torso was discovered in plastic in a plastic container at Hampstead Lake State Park. Um, There's so many, I mean, so many different bodies or victims in this stretch of, little stretch of area here. I mean, it's all clustered, you know, right there, a lot of it is in the area where the four victims were found wrapped in burlap. There's a couple of different maps that, that I've looked at. You know, right there at Gilgo Beach and even Oak Beach is right there. And Jones Beach is not that far away. Of course, Maynardville is a good good bit away and, and it's off those barrier islands. It's more inland. So why start dumping torsos inland and then move take the other remains out to Gilgo Beach no one knows but we do know there's a serial killer out there has he stopped? is he killing anymore? did he move somewhere else? did he shoot himself? did he kill himself? is he out there? Bert and Spoda hadn't said anything they'd done their time and moved on do they know who he is? I'm not saying they're the serial killer. I'm not saying they're Lisk at all. But I do believe that once upon a time they were involved in some pretty pretty big sex parties that involved prostitutes. And I believe that the Long Island serial killer was involved with them. I believe he owned a boat. I believe a lot of his kills were on a boat. I don't know where he's at today or what he's doing, but I hope through DNA and science or just somebody that may know something Eventually, this case is solved, and I hope that any other remains that are still out there that are unidentified are identified. So families cannot necessarily have closure because you never get closure when you've lost a loved one, but have answers and know where their loved one is and what happened to them. They deserve to know where their loved one is, and we deserve to know who you are, sir, Long Island serial killer. Are you dead? Are you out there? Are you, were you able to stop killing? Were you able to control your urges now of the fear of DNA and jail or prison or what death penalty or you love your freedom? You stopped? Can you stop? Are you too old now that 
it just doesn't work the way it used to and that desire's not there? Where are you? Let's find this SOB. Read anything you can get your hands on. Find out anything you can find out on the Long Island serial killer. No information is, any information is good. There's no information that would be bad. Anything you can find out, read it, study it. He's out there. They've got the clues. They've probably, they've obviously got more shit than they've let, let out. And that's, I understand that. Let's find this guy. Let's give these women answers. The, they deserve answers. I know they're no longer with us, but let's treat them with respect and dignity because just because they decided to do a certain thing or addiction maybe plagued their life, they are good people. They may have done bad things, but look in the mirror, fool, because I guarantee you're not as good as you think you are. I appreciate you listening. I'm sorry to ramble. We'll hear, you will hear from me next week. You won't see shit. I might put a video out there. Thanks for listening, guys. This is the Weekly Podcast, True Crime Edition. <laughs> All right, thanks for listening, guys, to this week's episode of Duh Weekly Podcast, True Crime Edition. Uh, I want to go through the same routine. Wherever you listen to this podcast, give us a rating, five stars. Give us a review. Give us a thumbs up. Find us on Instagram, Twitter. Email us at dubweeklypodcast at gmail.com. You can click on the links in the show notes for Anchor. Leave us a voicemail, and you can support the show by donating money. Um, we're covering, this week we're going to cover the arrest and conviction of Corey Miller, also known as C. Murder. Um, there is a big push right now to have uh, his conviction thrown out and a new trial or just drop charges altogether and get him out of prison. Um, some believe that he was wrongfully convicted of the death of a young man age of 16 years old named Steve uh, Thomas sorry Steve Taylor so anyway um, if you can I, I look I, I try to find a couple of episodes on this uh, story and I couldn't find anything so we're gonna maybe see if we can't get this one promote this share it if you're listening to this uh, Go wherever you get your podcast and, and rate the podcast so we can get this episode trending or get it to blow up or whatever we need to do um, to get uh, more ears to hear um, hear the story. You know, the very God-given freedoms, if they were just being hijacked right from underneath the, the very grasp of your fingertips, it's, you know, it's something back in the day that caused farmers, brick masons, blocksmiths, and just regular town people to rise up and take back the very freedoms that they, they felt were being uh, eroded from uh, from their lives. Um, and that would lead to what America is today. And that's why the Founding Fathers said, it would be better for 100 guilty men to go free 
then the life or freedoms of one innocent be, be locked up or be taken away. And that's why the first, the, the victims in this tragedy to be pushed to the side of this greater travesty, I don't want to happen. But what I want to say is, first, let's look at the victims. Our hearts go out to the victims, the victim's family. And by no means are we trying to take away from his life and his death. But that is a tragedy in itself for someone to lose their life at the hand of another. But what a travesty is, is that someone lose their freedoms or lose their life for something that they did not commit. So in this episode, I want to cover the conviction and life sentence of Corey Miller, a.k.a. C. Murder. We'll be right back. I kind of just want to go through this case and give you the facts of what what happened, basically. I mean, when you solve a murder in, in basically one day or a couple of days, as a matter of fact, the way the police department did with the death of Steve Taylor, you have, hopefully, hard rock solid physical evidence and hopefully it would take more than one day to process the scene to even get the evidence when when you have an eyewitness you would look for some other piece of evidence to corroborate that witness's statement because uh, we know eyewitness testimony is, is flawed even under the best circumstances like an empty room and you see someone shoot someone but you know in this case I've read that there was as many as 600 people that were actually in this club. So basically, what had happened is on January the 12th, 2002, 16-year-old Stephen Taylor takes a fake ID tells his parents he's going to the movies and he goes to the Platinum Club because they're having a rap battle there and he knows C-Murder or Corey Miller will be there and he's a huge fan. Well, apparently after he gets done with his set, he comes off the stage and maybe gets a little too close to Corey Miller who has tons of people around him because he is the most famous person in that club. Everyone knows who he is and He's going to stand out. So he's got 15, 20 people around him. Well, some people jump on this young man. Um, start beating him up, kicking him, punching him. And then a shot rings out. He's shot in the chest and killed. As police arrive on the scene, no one names anyone as a suspect. They say black male. Then Darnell Jordan is the first witness that they speak to who is a security guard at the club. 
Detective Kevin Nichols approaches him. He basically goes through the same thing. Blackmail, shot. C-Murder leaves the club, and he is arrested later on that night for causing a commotion at the House of Blues in uh, Baton Rouge. So he's not fleeing, he's not running, so he, he's, he's off doing, doing his thing the rest of that night. Now, Detective Nichols has worked that club before, so he is very familiar with Darnell Jordan. He knows him very well. So apparently, there's a phone call that comes in to Darnell Jordan. Now, this is hearsay. And Darnell Jordan supposedly comes to Detective Nichols on the 17th of January to say, yes, C-Murder or Corey Miller is the shooter. So when you take into account that Detective Nichols worked around this club uh, all the time and, and knew the witness, Darnell Jordan, makes it easier to have Nichols work over the witness and what better way to, to solve this murder than to get the loudmouth thug rapper C-Murder off of their streets. Now, C-Murder isn't real, but to the detectives, all, all the lyrics and all the songs that they talk about, all the violence must be true. And who cares? They're about to show him who's in charge. And it was easy to put him it was easy to put it, put it on him because of some of his past acts. He, he had been in trouble for shooting at someone in the, in the past. So when Corey Miller runs out of the Platinum Club, he doesn't go home, uh, doesn't lay low, because, you know, with being the most famous person in a packed club and uh, someone just he just shot and killed uh, a kid, you know, he wouldn't go to the House of Blues, you know, where he's arrested for a disturbance. He would go in hiding or lay low or get on a jet and leave the country. I mean, you would. So, what it boils down to at this point is on the 17th or 18th of January, just a few short days later, they issue an arrest warrant for Corey Miller, C-murder, second-degree murder. So what, what evidence do they have at this point? They have the eyewitness of one man only after hearsay that he got a call from someone saying, hey, you, you better watch what you say. Uh, his click or C-murder's click or Corey Miller's entourage is going to get you. So eyewitness testimony is not credible to begin with, even with a clear view, much less with as many as 600 people in the club. You're telling me that you've got a packed club that everybody knows who Corey Miller is, and out of that whole club you've got maybe, when it comes down to it, two to three people that tell your same story. It isn't until a year later the second witness comes in, Kenneth Jordan, no kin to Darnell Jordan, and he is brought in as a material witness because of the death of his infant child. So now all of a sudden, one year later, after he is being looked at, possibly for the death of his infant child, he now remembers that, yes, oh yes, a year, year before, yes, I seen Corey, Corey Miller shoot Steve Taylor. To me, that's suspicious. So now we've got two witnesses 
One come forward after a hearsay phone call that he was being threatened. The second one was a year later, only after he was brought in to find out what had happened to his infant son during his had passed away. Now, we know that Corey Miller's not an angel, and he has a history of violence and was out on bond for a shooting at a, at a club owner and a bouncer, but it doesn't matter when it comes to this case. You know, when they brought this thing to trial, there's no gun, there's no evidence, no blood, no motive. Why would he lose his freedoms and millions of dollars? Why kill a 16-year-old kid that, that was a fan of his? It's a crowded club. The most famous and recognizable man in the building had more to lose than anyone in the club. You know, to me, I would hope that it would take more than just two eyewitnesses than, you know, to, to convict someone of, of such a heinous crime.